Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk. I'm greatly honored tonight to have uh, my friend Victor Glover, who as many of you know is an astronaut due to launch on Crew Dragon here in a couple months. Vic and I have known each other for, I don't know, seven years now. We actually met through a mutual friend who's on this line, Micah Murphy, um, when, when Vic was still helping out Senator John McCain on the Hill. Um, and I, I've always admired his, his vision for the future. He's always been a forward-leaning innovator, naval aviator, test pilot, and now astronaut taking our, our culture into the next generation. Um, so Vic, thanks so much for being here. I'm honored to have you on the show tonight. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for uh, floating the idea, and it's, uh, it's cool to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to lead off with probably the most important question of the night. When I told my three-year-old that I was going to be interviewing an astronaut that I was going to live on the ISS, his first response was, can I go too? And so I have to ask you, can my three-year-old Knox accompany you in, in August? <laughs> uh, yes, it, it just may take him about 30 years to get ready, but, but uh, <laughs> it's totally doable. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, both my boys are space nuts as I am, and it's just it's so cool to have someone in our lives who, who they can relate to and look up to. Um, but I want to start kind of early on in your life. Um, you obviously became a naval aviator, and I'm curious, at what moment did you know you wanted to be a pilot? Oh, ooh, good question. Um, pilot. Yeah, see, I was getting ready to answer the astronaut question. Good no, question. We're, we're both aviators here. We've got to start up yeah. at the core, core foundation. Yes, and, and technically, I'm, until you get to space, I don't think you really should call yourself an astronaut. So I am there all an aviator, soon to be astronaut. So great question. I started the process of, of going into the Navy while I was in college. I had a mentor who was in the reserves, and he came to work one day at Cal Poly in his uniform. And that was really the beginning of, of my interest. In high school, um, the Naval Academy and, and West Point had approached me about athletics, but I, wasn't, um, I just wasn't in that frame of mind and wasn't considering it. And so while in college and crossing paths with this mentor in his Navy garb, I started thinking about it. And um, in the process, you have to, you know, choose what path you want to go down. And I wanted to go to BUDS. I wanted to be a special operator. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. <clears throat> and I was wrestling at the time, playing football. I was in way better shape. <laughs> and, uh, and so I wanted, I, you know, it was because I was playing sports in college. Really, the technical education was great. But being on the Cal Poly wrestling team and football team really impacted my worldview. And I wanted to continue to work with small groups of people, high, you know, high octane, high ops tempo, forward leaning, um, talented folks. And, and then naval aviation was sort of uh, my, my backup choice. And after doing some soul searching with my dad, so I was, I was 21. I was a junior in college. Um, going through the process of joining the Navy when I, you know, eventually settled on the idea of, well, you know, aviation and engineering degree. Actually, in 1998, my dad says to me, you know, he's trying to convince me to be a pilot and not be a, a Navy SEAL. Yep. And he says, you know, with an engineering degree from Cal Poly and Naval Aviator Wings, you might mess around and become an astronaut, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, but after some soul searching, I wound up deciding I'll, I'll go to flight school and, and see how that goes. Yeah. And I tell you what, I, uh, I have not worked a day in my life. Um, it's been a pretty sweet adventure, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't until late in life. I mean, I had not flown an airplane. My yeah. first flight was in a T-34 Mentor. Wow. Uh, which is a Navy trainer jet. Yep. So was the seed then to then be an astronaut from your father or do you thought about it in any capacity before then? Um, it's a two, you know, it's a two-faced question. I think there's a, um, a childhood piece that seeing the shuttle launch on television definitely impacted me and it was in there. That, that idea was in there, but I wasn't at the point where I thought that that was something that I could do. I didn't know what that background entailed. I didn't know anyone who did. And so, in fact, like seeing it, I've always liked fast bikes. I was into BMX when I was a kid and motorcycles. I really wanted a motorbike, a dirt bike. Yep. And so the idea of being at the helm of that thing, driving it, I was, I even thought of it in terms of driving. I was like, Ooh, it would be cool to drive that just like a, a, a formula one race car or a drag racer. And so, you know, but as a kid, that's kind of as deep as the thinking went. Um, but after embarking on that journey to become an aviator in my first combat tour, I went to test pilot school. And so I was in test pilot school and I went to a test pilot convention 
And uh, the, one of the speakers was Pam Melroy, one of the few female shuttle commanders. And she spoke about her mission where they repaired the solar array. If you've ever seen that little white uh, dot on our solar array that looks out of place, yes. a repair they made that, you know, we hadn't really planned to ever do that. <laughs> and we ripped the solar array when expanding them and their mission repaired it. Uh, and so she told the story about that evolution and listening to her talk about her team, it really, you know, the idea of being an astronaut just seemed way out there, like a lofty goal. And of course, every test pilot school graduate has to throw their application in because what yeah. we're ob obliged to. But um, listening to her talk about this amazing technical feat that was accomplished by this international group with support from all over the planet she couldn't stop talking about the people that she worked with and her regard for them. She was the shuttle commander, but she had this great esteem for her crewmates. And it, it, it sort of resonated with me the same way that, you know, when I was looking into my Navy career and thinking about being a Navy SEAL, I want to be a part of these high performing, high op tempo groups that are, you know, small and, and work in these challenging conditions all over the world. And so, um, that really resonated with me. So it was at 26 that it became a, okay, this childhood passion has also grown up and now it's a professional pursuit and I'm going to throw my hat in the ring, but not because, you know, I think I'm supposed to, I, I really want to. And the worst thing that can happen is they tell me no, and I get to be a naval aviator you right. know, um, until they take flying from me. But um, yeah, that was, it was about the age of 26 when, when this became a vision. That's fantastic. So before we dive into the astronaut stuff, and I, I certainly want to spend a lot of time there, you know, my vision of, of test pilots are, you know, from the right stuff, Chuck Yeager up at 100,000 feet with the F-100 and going into a flat spin and ejecting. What, what is the life of a Navy test pilot actually like? Oh, man. Have you seen the movie Office Space? <laughs> <laughs> PC load letter. Yeah. Uh, you know, funny. I mean, uh, it was a great, it was a great, education that the school to become a test pilot is a year it's one of the you know most unique programs we have in flying it's 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 a year long it i i tell people it's like go imagine going to stanford or mit except your laboratory flies your lab is in the air it's yeah. amazing it's a great graduate education and you really learn about that 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 system that you put on and go and take into combat or or, or take on missions across the country and so it was a great education. It lasted a year and then you go and you're a test pilot and a project officer. Um, and test piloting was, it was, um, the technical things that we did were, um, in one sense, very satisfying because we were developing, I was a weapons test pilot, what we do on the West Coast, on the East Coast, Naval Aviation usually tests our aircraft uh, and some other specific things, carrier suitability, but I was a West Coast weapons test pilot. And so the things we were developing or, or you know, polishing off were going into combat there in the near term. And so we felt like we were having a direct impact on the warfighter, and, and that was great. But being a test pilot is also a lot of managerial meeting, PowerPoint, the same things that you get in any organization where there, there's some part of it that you just absolutely love, and then there's going to be some part that is just uh, the necessary um, logistics or administration that goes with the job. And so there was a lot of that. Um, but I would tell you that the biggest overriding uh, thing Stand by. Vic, I think we may have lost you there for a second. I can see you. Can you see me? Yep. Loud and clear. We're back up. Okay. Sorry about that. Not sure what happened. No worries. Um, I think you're saying the biggest overriding thing about test pilot was that, that I've taken with me all these years was um, it was definitely not Chuck Yeager. It was much more the airplanes that we fly are a known commodity. We're adding all of these new systems, uh, weapons or sensors to them. And so the flying wasn't really that challenging. It was integration. It was all about integration and something I read in a NASA report a long time ago, that interfaces between things and minding those interfaces. If you can nail interfaces, we usually make the thing in the box really well. It's the connection between this box and that box. 
And so just the importance of, of, of integration and interfaces. But the other thing that I left that tour with was an appreciation for naval aviation, how much squadron culture meant to me. So in China Lake, we didn't really have an officer's club. And as a project officer, you're one, you know, naval aviator, operator, active duty military, but I may work with, you know, two or three dozen folks that were civilian engineers and program type folks. And that I enjoyed it. It was a great job and, and it was a great duty, but I really missed being one of a dozen, uh, 15 pilots in a squadron. Um, and, and so I knew leaving that tour that going back into the operational world was my destiny because we have the option from there to go and stay technical and do engineering, aerospace engineering duty officer is an option. But it, I, I really wanted to go back into the operational world. And, and so, um, and that's, that's what I uh, focused on after being a test pilot. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, one of the things that's striking is many NASA astronauts, not all, but many are test pilots. And I'd love to get your thoughts on, on why that particular culture um, breeds itself to be pilots. And what I'm thinking of is I was looking at a Joe Rogan podcast with one of your former colleagues, alumni, I forget who it was, but they were talking about there was a, a plug that didn't quite fit together. And one of the ways that they made it fit together was they actually spun the, the shuttle or the space station to hit the sun so that the, the, the square would actually expand and then they could fit it into the, in the slot. And I'm wondering, like, you mentioned integration and all these, like, engineering mindsets. What do you think it is about test pilots that allows them to be good astronauts? Uh, you're, you're, taking, um, you're taking an engineer or a physicist or a scientist, you know, I mean, you're taking someone who has gone through a rigorous academic technical program, but then had to take that and prove that they could use it to walk and chew gum and, and sort of connect the dots um, and, 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 and understand the theory behind it. So my, the commandant of test pilot school, when I, I went through Air Force test pilot school as well, I went to the West Coast with the Air Force and uh, he had this little thing he would say, his little mantra, theory, plan, fly, reduce, deduce, report. Theory, plan, fly, reduce, deduce, report. And it, it actually, it's because you can take that sort of like in the combat sense, you know, if you remember Boyd, the OODA loop, observe, yep. orient, decide, act. Yep. And if you can make your OODA loop smaller and faster, you can outdo, out OODA your enemies. Well, it, that's sort of the OODA loop for, for technical problems, these seemingly Gordian knots things that are so complicated, we never plan to repair the solar array on the space station in space, in orbit, 250 miles above the earth. But then we had to go and do it because it gripped while we were unfolding it. And, and so you take it and you do the basic fundamentals of, of engineering. When I go around the country and talk to, to kids about engineering, I tell them it's a simple thing. You learn, you learn analysis, which is to take these really complicated things apart into small pieces that you can understand. And then you come up with a solution via synthesis, taking small pieces of things that you understand and arranging them in a way that solves that problem. And so it, and you're able to do that. You're just able to do it in these challenging environments. Now, that's what I like to think because I am a test pilot. The real answer to your question is the Mercury 7. The real reason we still hire astronauts that are test pilots is because of the Mercury 7. That's just always going to be the case. But I think what we are learning is as we expand the aperture of what, what does it mean to be a good astronaut when we're honest about that and we look back on our track record, test pilots haven't always done the best job. They didn't always just, you know, kill it. Uh, we've looked at what behaviors, what competencies have done well. And when we look at that, it's, it's a mixture of things. And so now we're trying to really, again, being good engineers and scientists, we've analyzed that problem and broken it down into very specific competencies, many of which are not technical, many of which are interpersonal and intrapersonal, like resilience. That is probably the most important thing that you can have in this profession is resilience yeah. uh, and healthy sleep uh, habits. <laughs> but uh, so, so we have uh, expanded the astronaut corps and it now looks a lot more like the rest of the science and technology workforce, a lot more like America really. But um, uh, I think that the, the test pilot piece will always be there for nostalgia reasons because hmm. of our beginnings. Yeah. Uh, and I think that skill set still matters. I, it is the reason I'm assigned to fly crew one. The first operational mission of, of the crew dragon spacecraft is because we have been doing that project officer bit. 
giving them feedback on the human machine interface, literally the, the interface between the spacecraft and the person, one of the more challenging interfaces to get right. Um, we've also been doing, you know, schedule maintenance and all these other things that we did as test pilots. And so my commander, Mike Hopkins, is an Air Force colonel, Air Force TPS graduate, uh, and, a, and a former project officer himself. And so we've definitely put those skills to use. And I would say every test pilot that's come through here, you know, it's our dream to fly a new spaceship and, and not many of us are, are given that privilege. So it's awesome because we haven't done this in 30 years. That's um, well, you can kind of say the first Americans to fly in Soyuz, but we weren't allowed to make any inputs on it. And mm -hmm. we've made for the last two years, some changes to the spacecraft that are going to hopefully make it better for our crewmates to come. Yeah. Well, so, cool. much to get, so much to get into. I, I'd love to, can you just talk about Mercury 7 real quick? I think that's, that's a really seminal moment in the space program. You mentioned it. What, what happened for those in the audience that may not have been familiar with their NASA history? So, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say it like this, if you're okay with me just kind of yeah. giving a really broad brush, but I like to say, so my class is eight. Eight balls was our, is our nickname. The original seven, Mercury 7, it was all military pilots, test pilots, um, and that group, you know, that gave us the first American in space. You know, Yuri Gagarin was the first human being. The, the Russians beat us to that. But the first American we put in space was a uh, Navy test pilot, uh, Alan Shepard. And so that, that set the bit. And they were chosen very specifically for that. You know, uh, if you've ever read the right stuff, the movie mm -hmm. is really good. But yeah. the book is amazing. Tom Wolfe, absolutely, he lost recently, uh, was an amazing author and able to really capture the essence of things. And he really was able to capture a lot of naval aviation in that book. Um, but the right stuff is essentially about being the kind of person who can you know, the, the ship is burning out from underneath you, but you can still do the next right thing and then the next right thing after that and the next right thing. It's not just the whole being cool hand Luke and mm -hmm. not getting nervous in the face of danger. It's, it's, it's the training that goes into, I've done this so many times and seen this light flash in the simulator that I don't have an emotional response to it. I just know that I need to do this and then this and then this or we're gonna blow up and I'm gonna make sure that that doesn't happen because I care about these people. And so the Mercury 7, um, I think is, is uh, a great time for our country, but it all is also a time that it is indicative of, it gave us these heroes, but it was also a very challenging time for our country. And so uh, one of the things that I like to highlight about my class, and now we've had another astronaut class come in behind us, but when we were the rookies, I used to compare us to the Mercury 7 and say that I think we bring as much skill to the table, except for we have a lot more diverse skills. I have an engineer in my class, Christina Cook, who is a civilian engineer, built science instruments that are on you know, probes all over uh, our uh, um, uh, solar system. And I've got a scientist who like raised geese from eggs to flying. She taught them how to fly so that they could wear these little helmets that she could teach them to, to wear as she measured their uh, VO2 max while they were in flight, like the first time that that had ever been hmm. done. Pretty amazing. Um, uh, and her call sign is Goose, by the way. <laughs> You're welcome. Nice, I'm um, I like that. And uh, we have an Army uh, Special Forces doctor. He's an Army Ranger and a physician. Uh, kick your butt and then sew it up, you know. And so, but the difference, the so the similarities that we bring in terms of technical competence are there, but the difference is. Well, one, it's four men and four women. And so the Mercury 7, as amazing as they were and as, as much of a shot in the arm as they were to the country in a pretty challenging time, if you go back and think about the grand history of what was going on in our country when we hired those astronauts, they also represented sort of some of the problems of that age and not, not one woman. There wasn't even a woman that made it into consideration. There was no, I, there was no way we were going to hire a woman at that point. And they're also, you know, they, it was it was seven white guys. Mm -hmm. And so and, and I, you know, I know that there was some talented folks out there, but that they didn't have the opportunity to fly yep. in the service, let alone to, to rise to the top and be considered. All right. I need to see your best. We want to take a few of those and, and, and look at bringing them to NASA. And so our class, I think, is is um, an acknowledgement that we have taken some really big steps forward. And that's one piece of it. But, you know, I, I have some conversations about this now because we're getting ready to hire another class of astronauts. What we pick and what we fly, you know, we pay a lot of attention to who we pick and that drums up a lot of public interest. But who we fly also has to match. Yeah. If we say we want to hire classes that are, 
or microcosms of American society, we also need to fly Americans that are a microcosm of American society, not because we have a quota to do so, but, but because we have a talented pool that we can pull from in this science and technology workforce that look like America and represent the best of America. And so, and I think, um, I think we have the best shot we've ever had at doing that. We've, we're, we've been doing it and I think we're just gonna continue to, to make strides in a positive direction in that manner. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so one of the things I love about your background- I'm sorry, is, one more thing. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say this, maybe it was implied, but again, I, I, you know, the Mercury 7 were the first seven Americans that we made astronauts. So I, if I did not say that, that was <laughs> pretty significant. The original astronauts at NASA. Way to bury the lead there, Vic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so one of the things I love about your background is you, you spent some time on the Hill, the, the, the Capitol with Senator John McCain. And one of the things I've been wrestling with intellectually is I'm a huge fan of the space program, but there was, there was a lot of political momentum in the 60s behind it. You know, people wanted to beat the Russians, wanted to go to the moon. It was not just this technological thing. It was, it was a countrywide effort. And, you know, in the 21st century, there's a lot of passion, but there's not the same political will behind it. You know, and I don't want you to get into politics. I know you have a very strict about it. What is the importance of like the American public getting behind the space program to do the stuff y'all do? Oh, I mean, it's it's prime. So, you know, I, I so one of my favorite groups to talk to kids first and foremost, like I, I could happily never give an outreach event to adults and just talk to your kids and I would be fine with that. But they make me talk company to adults sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I try to fo focus on like young engineers, like yeah. NASA new hires and our interns. Um, and, and one of the things that I ask them is what's the most important letter in the acronym NASA, right? First of all, can you even say what the letters mean? And it's interesting how many people don't know what NASA stands for, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And so which letter in that is the most important? And, and people arguably will say eight times out of 10, the S, space, man, you're an astronaut, it's gotta be space. And I'm like, no. So then they go, uh, aeronautics? And I'm like, no. And they're like, now they're confused. It's national. Mm -hmm. We are a part of the American government. So what, what the American public wants from us matters more than anything. So we are public servants, first and foremost. And, and what we get to do is very unique. And I get it in, in the, the whole space. But, you know, we're not a company. We aren't SpaceX. Uh, we hope SpaceX is, is successful. But you know, I own stock in SpaceX. I, I'm not allowed to do that. I, my job is to do the best I can so that the government gets their money's worth from SpaceX. And so what the American people want is, is of vital importance. And when I first showed up, something that, okay, I got to tell you a short story. So uh, I don't do short stories. I'm just going to tell you a story. Please. <laughs> when I got selected, I went into Senator McCain's office and I told him I had good news and I had bad news. <laughs> he goes, let me guess. You got selected to be an astronaut. And, and uh, it turns out he knows the Kelly brothers, um, yeah. Arizona connection. And he had heard already that I was selected. And so I was like, yes, sir. And so the, the bad news is I got to leave uh, early. And so anyway, and uh, we you know, had a long conversation and a couple uh, weeks later, you know, Micah uh, gets to, to come over and, and uh, finish out working that year in, in Senator McCain's office, a great opportunity. Um, but one of the things he said to me in that conversation was, um, he, well, he actually first asked me, he said, are you sure you really want to do this? Mm -hmm. And boy, I tell you, that is something that I struggle with every day. I love being a naval aviator. I told you how when I was a test pilot, I longed to be back in the fleet for that squadron culture, that squadron life yep. and um, it, fleet squadron life. And, and I, I have that same feeling here sometimes. There are some great things here that I wouldn't trade for anything, uh, but, but I still miss that naval aviation. Well, he said, do you, are you sure you want to do this? And I'll absolutely, who turns down NASA? But I, you know, it's a job. It's still a job. Yep, it still yep. has those admin and logistics things that you have to deal with. But he says, well, you know what? When you go there, you make sure to help NASA get our ability to launch Americans going uh, so that we can stop relying so much on Russia. And, you know, I didn't have any choice in this, but the fact that I'm working with the commercial crew program and, and flying a SpaceX spacecraft from Kennedy Space Center to the International Space Station is like serendipitous, awesome, uh, and, 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 and all kinds of other uh, uh, hyperbole that I could use, but um, it's, it's been awesome. And so one of the reasons I think that we have had lower 
what would at least appear to be lower public support is the lack of a launch vehicle. Yeah. Even though we've had human beings in space, I see a gentleman up here uh, in the red football jersey on Adam Gangler's feed. Well, how you doing? What's your name? You're muted. Uh, Sam. Sam, how you doing, Sam? How old are you? Uh, 11 now. 11. Did you know that your entire life, that you were born with a human being in space, and your entire life, every day of your life, there's been a human being in low Earth orbit in space? Did you know that? No. Yeah, there are adults now. This year is the first year that, the, no, last year was the first year that there are adults that lived their entire lives underneath a human in space. The space station's been airborne for 20 years or spaceborne for 20 years, and uh, we're approaching, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's been airborne for 22 years and approaching 20 years of having human presence, continuous human presence. And so, Space activities are important, but America likes the, 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 the smoke and fire, and we like the noise and the speed. And so when the shuttle retired, it seemed like we were less busy, even though we were busier. And so when you take away the shuttle, the, what the shuttle did, you watched the shuttle launch on TV or in person, it didn't matter. But when you saw the shuttle launch, it hit you in the heart. And then you thought, wow, how does that happen? Those space shuttle main engines. That's an amazing system. Those solid boosters, those solid rocket motors on there, the most powerful rocket engines ever made to this day. Uh, it made you go online or grab your Encyclopedia Britannica and actually study. So you hit them in the heart. And once you had the heart, the brain was easy. The information was there and you'd go find it. Wow, it comes in the atmosphere going so fast that it rubs on the air and the air gets so hot it turns into a fireball. That's amazing. And you'd go read about plasma and then you'd go read about thermal protection systems and, and you learn that those silica tiles, they could get so hot, but you could pull one out of the oven with your hand and not get burned. It's amazing technology. You, because you had the heart, getting the head to follow was easy. And now NASA's outreach program has essentially turned into just fill their heads with information because we haven't figured out the right way of grabbing the heart. And it's like, you know, it, it's, it's, you can talk as much as you want to, yep. but real world accomplishment says more than you can ever say in your strategic communication. And so when we have a spacecraft and a rocket that can grab them in the heart, then they're gonna open the head to us and then you can fill it with information. And so the public support is key. And that's why when I showed up here, I would say it, it wasn't guidance or a talking point, but it was my belief. The most important thing any of us are working on is returning the ability for America to launch spacecraft from America. And I, I love going to Russia. Some of my best friends are Russian cosmonauts and their space program is amazing. It's different, but it's amazing. And that Soyuz rocket and spaceship is an amazingly reliable system. The launch escape system on that saved one of my friends' lives and it's a great system. But you know what? Getting a spacecraft that has an American flag on the side, it was, was our number one imperative. And I still stand by that to this day until I fly and land my own. Well, that's such an important point. I'm just reflecting back a couple weeks ago. I took my kids. Dallas had just reopened and we went to the, the Frontiers of Flight Museum and we happened to mistime it in a very serendipitous way where they were, we were still there when they opened up the auditorium. We got to go watch the first launch of Crew Dragon with, with the two astronauts on there. And, you know, three and a five-year-old boy sitting next to me just in absolute awe as the rocket ship went into the air, watching the telemetry, watching the rockets. Then we got home and my, my, my five-year-old literally wanted to spend the next 19 hours watching the NASA feed until they docked at the space station. Yeah. And so we, we, we put him to bed. But the next morning, we got the video out. We put it on, on YouTube or whatever. And he watched the docking. And like, he was just awe-inspired. So you need those magical moments, to your point. Yes. You get, open up the heart and their mind is easy to capture. I love that phrase. Yes. That's, that's just so true. So you talked, you know, you talked about Crew Dragon and SpaceX. And, you know, you mentioned the, the N in NASA for national. Can you talk about like the evolution and how important it is that we have, you know, the private sector now fully engaged in this and what the relationship is with NASA right now? Wow. Yeah. Um, so another part of being the National Aeronautics and Space Administration is we have civilian leadership that they come up with a vision and it's our job to enact that vision. Um, and something that has been uh, an imperative for NASA, especially in our human exploration directorate, which all of our, the, the SLS, our big rocket, the commercial crew, Boeing and SpaceX, 
some of the cargo providers um, and the International Space Station program all fall under this human exploration director out of, out of headquarters in DC. They were directed by Congress and the White House. It's been over a decade now because the commercial crew program grew out of this, obviously, but the commercial cargo resupply capability to the space station as well. And this was one of the drivers that uh, helped to bring the space, the, the space shuttle program uh, to a close. And that was that we wanted to commercialize low Earth orbit. And that wasn't NASA's doing. That was what our leaders told us to do mm. and to, to help gin up a space economy. And so that's been our direction for over a decade. And that's something that we're working very hard on. And so, um, so how important is it? Well, it's, it's a national strategic objective. And that, I know that doesn't like sound good and kids don't care about that, but, but it's, it's direction from the highest levels. That's what the president and Congress want us to do. And that's in uh, our, our guiding documents. It's, it's, uh, and it's what we're trying to enact and, and support SpaceX to be able to do. You know, we envision one day they're going to have their own astronauts that they're going to fly to space station or some other, maybe a commercial uh, space station. And, and, and that is completely fine because it, doing that enables us to sort of gracefully hand over low Earth orbit while we focus on getting out of a reliance on something that is what we call Earth reliance. So the space station, if you imagine the Earth is 8,000 miles around, right? So if I was holding the Earth right here, the orbit of the space station would just be the skin on the back of my hand, right? If the Earth was inside, it's not that far away when you consider the size of the Earth. But if this was the Earth, uh, in my next door neighbor's house on the far side of his house would be the moon. Hmm. And that's where we want to go next. Yeah. And so, because we have to do that in order to get to Mars. And yes, Mars has been our 30 year problem for probably the last 30 years. <laughs> uh, we recognize that that's uh, yeah, jokes on us, but um, we want to get out of earth dependent systems and get beyond low earth orbit. And so going to the moon is a whole different ball game. And just because we've been there before, we want to go back and stay. Whole different ball game. Kind of like going from low Earth orbit into uh, lunar orbit. Just a very different dynamic. Going to stay requires very different systems, very different levels of reliability. If I tell my wife I've got mission to go to the moon, she's going to ask questions that we've got to be ready to answer. And we're not ready to answer those just yet. Yeah. But that allows us to focus our attention on those, those, those bigger problems of of getting to the moon and then staying. And something that this commercial public-private partnership has allowed us to do is also leverage the best creativity that's out there and to sort of use that competitive, you know, capitalist mantra to, to get us the best system. So when we first decided to go with Boeing and SpaceX, and, and I'm, you know, you know, I wouldn't say this out in public, uh, but, you know, you're close friends, I consider, and so deciding to keep both contractors on to provide this capability was a very important decision, but it was very difficult to do and to justify. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the, the happenings of the last two years, then uh, I, I would say that it was a wise decision because I'm making an assumption here. This isn't insider information. I'm assuming when we first made the decision to go with both, a lot of people had an idea of who was going to be more successful early on. And I think it has proven that that was not the case. Um, I know that Freakonomics is not as out of good graces these days, but I still love this line in it that the conventional wisdom is often wrong. And it was in this case, I believe. So um, people thought there is no way Puff the Magic Dragon is going to beat Big Boeing. And, um, and I think it was a wise decision. Again, we used the commercial drive, the young startup ingenuity, versus the big aerospace defense contractor and, and allowed them to take that and run with it and have that healthy competition, that sibling rivalry. And we've been the beneficiary, um, not just in the systems that are developed, but also culturally. NASA has learned from both of them. And I think our relationship, to finish answering your question, our relationship with SpaceX and Boeing have changed over the years, but for the better. If you drew a triangle on a chart that was NASA culture, Boeing culture, and SpaceX culture, when we first started, all of us wanted to stay in our corners. I think today we're somewhere in the middle, 
really honoring the trade space and realizing that there's risks and, and reward to different areas in that and, and, and trying to use the best uh, of what's, what's what we've created as, as this new organization, um, capitalizing the best of public and private uh, efforts. And so it's the future, whether people like it or not, you know, I don't work for SpaceX. It's important to, to make some distinctions. I think the term commercial crew program sounds a little bit like, well, yeah, you're a commercial crew, but I, I am NASA. I'm a NASA astronaut. I work for the government. I'm a Navy commander. I don't work for SpaceX. And so I have to remind folks of that sometimes. But other than uh, some confusing uh, uh, titles and things, I think it's, it's great. But it is the future, whether we like it or not. That's where we're going so that NASA can focus on continuing to, to shine light in the dark places, reach for new heights, reveal the unknown for the benefit of humankind. That's what we're all about and, and we're going to continue to be about. So the president has expressed a goal to get back to the moon by 2024. That will be basically 50 years since the last time we visited. What, what do we have to do in terms of technology? Is it, is it reinventing the wheel? Are we able to leverage what we did 50 years ago? Like what's going to change this time around if we go to the moon compared to 1960 and 1970? Um, every, everything, but the physics, right? I mean, the physics to get there is the same. It's still hard. It still takes a big rocket. <clears throat> But the plan, what we're going to do and how we're going to do it are, are, are different. Um, we, we've obvi we obviously have a, um, a program, the Apollo program, to lean on. Actually, you know, we started Mercury to get humans in space. We wanted to know what it was like to orbit, not just to get weightless, but then to orbit the Earth. Uh, and then we wanted to go bigger. And we had this Apollo. The goal is going to the moon to do that, this, that, and the other thing. And then we realized, well, we got to get more people up there. So we said, oh, we need this Gemini capsule. We had actually started Apollo before the idea of Gemini took hold. Hmm. And we realized we needed a transition between Mercury and Apollo. So Gemini is born, and, which is a two-person capsule, essentially a two-person Mercury capsule. Yeah. And, um, and you're right, you know, the politics and all the other things that were going on, uh, made accelerated our ability to, to do some things that were still amazing in their own right. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the Saturn V rocket is one of the most amazing things that humans have ever made. It, it's an amazing, we have one that I drive by every morning when I go into work and it is just a, a phenomenal uh, accomplishment. When we do go back to the moon, I think we're going to be able to say that same thing. We're going to have that same sentiment about something. And I, I can't tell you what it is either. I, I, I think when the uh, SLS rocket and the uh, Orion spacecraft fly people, it is going to be an amazing accomplishment. Uh, what the plan is, it'll be the most powerful rocket ever built. Uh, it has got some amazing capabilities. Um, uh, and, but, but what we're doing is different. The, for example, the appetite for risk is different than it was back then. And, and I think that's for a lot of reasons. Um, also related to your question earlier about why public support may be where it is. You know, the other thing nowadays is we all walk around with these things, right? That we think yeah. make us smarter and make us <laughs> feel more connected and all this. They also distract the heck out of us. And so we're just inundated with information. And so, but that also means you can constantly watch news and everything is always breaking and, you know, breaking news stories. And so the idea of launching a rocket and it not going well is even less um, tenable nowadays. And so that'll be one of the big differences is that our risk posture, our rocket hardware, our spacecraft hardware, life support systems, our water generation, waste purification systems, those things are just going to be orders of magnitude better than they were back then because the public demands that of us. Um, it may look the same on the outside, but it will be de very different on the inside because we, we realize that we there are risks that you will always have to manage, um, but there are some risks that we just won't be able to take that we were able to take before. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I, my friend Wyatt just had asked a great question. He actually works for, for Uber in their flying cars division. Um, but NASA has a very strong culture. It's been around for you know decades. Tesla, or no, sorry, uh, SpaceX has a, a very unique culture. How have you found the, the cultures interacting with each other? Are they complementary? How, how do those organizations interact to create a really powerful uh, a collaboration? I think um, I, I um, think it's like having a really young sibling. 
<laughs> so I've got uh, two brothers that are 10 and 15 years younger than me. You know, when I was younger, a new driver, if I took them with me to the mall, um, you know, I was, like, it, I was like an uncle as opposed to a big brother, you know, and I think that's kind of our relationship with them. We go to SpaceX and you can always figure out who's the SpaceX folks and who are the NASA folks because uh, if there's a collar on their shirt, they're NASA. If they're mm. in a t-shirt, they're SpaceX. Yeah. And that's, you know, but I mean, you really can, you can see the difference. Yeah. Everybody at SpaceX looks 21 and, and all the NASA folks have been doing what they've been doing for a decade or two or three. But when you're there, when you go to Hawthorne or to McGregor or to Kennedy Space Center and you're in their environment, in their spaces, there really is something electric and something special about their workforce. And they all buy into it. They do a very good job, just like the Marine Corps does at indoctrinating Marines. Are, they, are, they are Marines and SpaceXers are SpaceXers. And there, is just, there are some indelible qualities about them all that, that they share. And they do a very good job of onboarding their folks. Um, I think that some of the biggest, I'll, let's see, some of the things we struggled with early on, and I've only been working with them for four years or so, uh, and our relationship has definitely changed for the better. And, and, and probably one of the greatest things to come out of this, just like, in my opinion, the Apollo program was a great technical accomplishment, but the team we ran, the nationwide team of universities, laboratories, government and private entities is the real accomplishment of Apollo. Um, the relationship between our companies is as impressive as the booster and spacecraft that they have created. When we first showed up, their ability to generate software and new products was impressive, but frustrating because we would be making comments on something that would be two or three versions old. Hmm. And so version control, configuration control, it was just, it, it, from the outside, it looked frenetic. Well, from the inside, they'll tell you, no, it is frenetic. We just, yeah. but at the end, we have a really good product. And so it's really this like controlled, it seemed it's an apparent like controlled chaos that it was tough for NASA to get comfortable with. Um, but they just produced, they just showed up and crushed it a few times and, and, and you just, all right, let them run with it. You let them run. And besides, it's their spacecraft. It's not ours. It's theirs. We're just here as advisors because they don't have to take our input. And so for us, it was learning to be comfortable in that role where we weren't building a space show that we had complete say. We were advising and we had to work with the uh, make a team mentality as opposed to just give direction and tell you what to do. We had to win friends and become a part of the inside forming storming norming and then performing and we had to really work through that relationship uh, process and so it was um frustrating at first but now i look at it and i'm really impressed we went to to uh uh to do a very important i will say this a very important capability on this aircraft we went to a spacecraft we went to evaluate it and we showed up we got in the sim ran through the evaluation and said eh, it's pretty good. Here's some nice to have. This would be awesome. If you, we could do that, that would yeah. be helpful. And they stayed up and had what they call a codathon overnight. And we showed up the next morning and it was fixed. Wow. All of those things that we just wanted, most of them were nice to have, but a couple of them have become capabilities that we have built really important things on top of. Yeah. And they did it overnight. And, and the way it works, their, their simulator runs, it's like, essentially running the flight software. So this is, it wasn't just a, let me show you something that looks nice. They fixed some of the problems that we, we had identified. And so you can't do that in a bureaucracy. I worked for F-18 software when I was a weapon systems test pilot. And we put out new software every 18 months. And I don't care if we were just changing the font size on one letter, or if we were gonna really revamp this really important display, which was a big deal. Those things all took 18 months. Yeah. It could go slower, but somebody was going to lose their job. But it was really not possible to go faster. And it wasn't physics. It was bureaucracy. But it took 18 months or longer. These guys don't have that bureaucracy. They're very flat and they're very capable because of that. And so I think we've learned from them. Their risk appetite and ours are a little bit different. But at the end of the day, we all have to sign off on, on the missions especially when we integrate one with the space station, because we own, we have operational authority of the space station and the two to four kilometers around it. 
And so um, that's what I think is the most impressive part without getting into, you know, things that I should keep private. Yeah. We have learned a ton from them and they have learned a ton from us. And both of our organizations are better for giving each other a chance for, for, for not turning our back on it and saying, well, we've always done it this way. And if you don't meet us in this corner, there's no deal. We both had to take a chance on each other because there are some things about NASA that frustrate SpaceX Mm -hmm. and they have had to give us that same deference. And I think we're all better for it. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting what what you just mentioned sounds very reminiscent of how we met through the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum and the CNO Rapid Innovation Cell and bring in, you know, we'll just call them forward-leaning junior officers who have some ideas and having them run headlong in the bureaucracy, both organizations can't help but learn and grow from the other. And there's sometimes exactly. growing pains, but it's, it's, it's the true benefit of diversity. You get different viewpoints, different opinions, clashing together and grinding and getting a better result. And it sounds yes. like this, this collaboration has been incredibly fruitful. Um, yeah. You know, is Hyman Rickover that has the quote, you know, organizations that, uh, that, you know, don't uh, appreciate uh, conflict. Uh, I forget the exact quote, but essentially yeah. that if you're one of those people that just avoids conflict at all costs, the only thing that you're guaranteeing your organization is the grade. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Boyd earlier. I mean, that was his MO and, you know, you can debate the, the pros and cons of Boyd, but he certainly had impact and, you know, drove us to a different direction. I, I want to switch gears and maybe get into the nitty gritty of like what you've experienced for the past two years. You know, I remember watching on Twitter when the announcement came out that you were going to be assigned to this first thing. And I was as giddy as a little schoolgirl because I was, I'd love seeing you up on stage, but it's been two years and you're about to launch. So what has the last two years been like? And, you know, what goes into the training to make it so long and to get ready for this thing? Yeah, you know, um, and it's so I've been here for seven years. This August will be seven years, and I've been training that whole time too. It's not mm, that yeah. you know this last two years have been. It definitely the volume has gone up. It's much more specific, and all of the focus, all of the specialists, all of the nitty gritty is focused on you when you're in line to go to the space station. And so I've learned a ton in these last two years. Uh, But it's also been interesting because we are really the first people going through the full syllabus that SpaceX is going to use to try to train astronauts to fly Dragon. And so we're learning, but then we also spend time giving them feedback on, hey, here's a way we think we can improve the training. So it's interesting. We're training, we're training the trainers, and we're also still fully certified to, to do all of the missions on the space station, spacewalks, robotics. We, we speak Russian so that we can interact and, and work with the uh, Rus- our Russian cosmonauts on board. And so we are still doing the full, what we call expedition training flow for living and working on the space station. But we're also learning to safely fly the, the crew dragon. And, you know, we don't use the terms normal uh, and, and not normal. We, we say nominal and contingency or off nominal. And so we have to be able to operate dragon in nominal uh, mission phase and also off anomaly or an emergency situation, just like we learn uh, in aviation. You know, you start off with your basics, you do systems, then you do uh, the basic nominal procedures. And then when you get savvy at that, then you start integrating complicated operational scenarios and then emergency procedures. And, uh, and we do the same thing. It's very akin to aviation training. Uh, and, you know, to, from the time I sat July 6th, 2000 was my first flight. I got winged in December of 2001, and then I finished F-18 training in about may have the end or the very beginning of 2003 or the end of 2002. Yeah. And so, you know, a, a similar timeline, roughly a similar timeline when I get to the point where I've launched. And if you think about it, I mean, there are just some you don't learn quickly about this after your five times on the road. This is my airplane. You know, I would tell you these same words. And I tell my daughters this, you're the worst driver you're ever going to be right now. So focus mm-hmm. on just driving because you're only going to get better. I'm not putting you down. You're just, you're not as good. So uh, it takes time to learn to fly a spacecraft. And, and, and we do spacewalks, right? I'm not just talking about dragging. It takes time to learn to fly a spacecraft. Our spacesuit that we walk out in is called the EVA, Extravehicular Activity Mobility Unit. It looks like clothing. We call it a spacesuit, but it is actually a spacecraft. It's got 
rockets on it, little thrusters and controllers and a life support system. Uh, it has water, no food. That's the one problem. Hmm. Uh, and it has a very rudimentary bathroom <laughs> on it as well. So um, it's a spacecraft and those things just take time. They take time to learn. And so, like I said, I've been training for seven years. So what's been different in these last two years is the training is specific to your mission, to what you're going to do, except you add this caveat that, well, you're flying a developmental vehicle that until uh, a few weeks ago had not flown human beings, which means we don't really know when you're going to fly. So you got to be a jack of all trade. We're going to train you to make sure you're still good at all these things. And so the focus of assigned training when you're assigned to a mission is supposed to be getting into the specifics of what's going to happen when you're up there. And with our Soyuz counterparts, they know very specifically, we have a winter, spring, summer, and a fall launch, four launches a year. It's almost like clockwork and pretty dependable. Ours has been an exercise in adaptability and, and just being comfortable with uh, uncertainty. And so, and also just really keeping those basic skills really sharp and then understanding um, degraded mode operations just across the board, a, a degraded space station, a degraded spacesuit, a degraded dragon, and just being ready in, in case any of those things decides it wants to have a bad day, how we can end it on a good note. So um, yeah, it's been very interesting though. These last two years have been some of the most fun I've had in all this training. Uh, and it's all been some amazing training, but it's been great because we have a crew. It was just Mike Hopkins and I for a long time, and now that we've got the full crew, uh, JAXA astronaut Soichi Noguchi and NASA astronaut Shannon Walker, the four of us and our backups have been having a, a really great time. So we kind of we get to take the party with us where we're going, and that's actually been the best part is having a crew to go through these last two years with. Yeah, well, you mentioned you mentioned the, the JAXA partner you have, and you mentioned Soyuz earlier. You know, there's always international tensions. Um, but space seems to be somewhat of a unifying factor. Can you talk about, you know, the international relationships in space and NASA in particular, and, you know, what role that will play in this upcoming mission? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the, you know, we, we keep saying, you know, the, the hashtag on social media is launch America. And, you know, internally now it's land America, get my friends home safe. But, you know, launch America we, it is very important that we, we have this capability, that we have this fully operational capability, but it is to get astronauts from multiple nations uh, to the space station, to the International Space Station. And so while there is a lot of focus, and this has been a great time for America, um, it is still servicing the International Space Station, which is humanity's laboratory in low Earth orbit. And so that won't change. I still take Russian language training, um, and, and I think it's important that we continue to uh, manage and care for that relationship, our partnership with the Russian Space Agency. Their astronauts, their cosmonauts have an opportunity to fly with us on our American spacecraft, all of them. And, you know, there, and there's, there's more than just the astronauts. There is hardware. Uh, a big part of our program going back to the moon is going to rely on hardware made by the European and the Canadian space agencies. Their governments have committed to this program for the long haul, and, and that's, that's a great thing. And so international partnership is, is the now and the foreseeable future. It will be very hard to sustain because you still need a government involved right now because the, 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 the economic spiral for the space economy has not tightened to the point where it's self-sustaining. You're going to need governments to support this and to keep it on the, the budget line. And so it, doing this as an independent nation and just you know, uh, unilaterally saying we're going to the moon is, is going to be very hard. And you know, it might be the next several missions may only have American astronauts on. That's very possible. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you can best believe the technology that helped get them there, the planning, the rover that did the surveillance on the dark side of the moon may not have been American. So it will be a global effort. Uh, and, and that's the right thing. I mean, it's, you know, the, 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 the best uh, 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 international uh, team on and off the planet is the one trying to send our, our, our folks and our things into space, I think. And so uh and that's gonna i don't think that's gonna change it, it would be very hard for it to change i think yeah 
So in addition to, you know, obviously launching on a rocket up to the ISS, you'll be spending a significant amount of time up there. What, what, do, you, what do you do with your six months? What, what kind of do experiments? Are you doing testing? What, what are the things you occupy your days with up there? So um, it's, it's uh, pr the primary things are going to be science. There's a ton of science experiments going on. And there are primary investigators, the, the actual scientists that come up with these things and manage and fund these studies, they're all over the planet. And uh, that's the other thing that has changed in the last two years is my training has involved working with their experiments more. And some of those experiments, I am the variable. And so I'm doing a lot of what we call baseline data collection, where, you know, they see how my perception of time and space and orientation is now. And then they're going to measure it while I'm in space. And then they're going to measure it while I get, when I get back and see if they can correlate that to uh, any effects due to microgravity or, or other things. And so, um, but science, there's, you know, 300 or so experiments at, on any, at any one time. And we're just the hands in the glove box, moving this thing from here to there. Uh, and, and so sometimes um, it's, it's just, you're, it's like a conveyor belt. You're hitting these three different racks and moving pieces around to help support the science, to keep the science going. Um, but also the upkeep and maintenance. Like I said, the, uh, the first pieces of the International Space Station went up in 1998. Humans uh, showed up on November 2nd of 2000. The space station is not young, and so we have to do about a third of our time in orbit is given to keeping the station flying. And that's inside, which we just call in-flight maintenance, and then outside, when we do work outside, we call that a spacewalker, an EVA. And so EVAs are a big one as well. That takes a lot of planning. There's a whole lot of things leading up to it. If you actually sit on NASA TV and watch those, God bless you, that's seven hours <laughs> of your life that you're not going to get back. And it looks like there's not a whole lot going on because when that big white suit is sitting there up against the truss and it doesn't look like he's moving, he or she in that suit is working their butt off, trust me. Uh, it just doesn't look uh, like a whole lot. It doesn't look like a football or a soccer game for sure. Uh, but spacewalks are a big one. And then robotic operations to support spacewalks. But we also use the robotic arm to grab the cargo vehicles. Some of them dock, which means they automatically connect to the space station. Some of them just get kind of close and essentially the space station and that cargo ship fly formation. And then we turn the, the uh, attitude control systems on them both off essentially, and they just drift next to each other. And then we reach out with the uh, robotic arm and grab it and then stick it onto the space station. That's pretty cool. Um, and, and then outreach. One of the things I think is really amazing was the original charter of the International Space Station included using it as a laboratory, a manufacturing facility, a science uh, uh, facility, obviously. It's obviously a laboratory, but also a place to conduct outreach, global outreach. And so that is one of the primary missions that we'll conduct as well. So being able to do ham radio passes with kids all over the planet and to talk to schools, universities, technical conferences, medical conferences, uh, or just people all over that, you know, love what the, what NASA's doing. And, and we get to be the ambassadors of, of that and that message and, and, and share some of the great things that are going on for the agency. And, um, and yeah, and then there's a bunch of little things that you don't care about at inventorying things, regular training to make sure we can still fly our spaceship home and remember our emergency procedures. We have to memorize a couple of things to, to be able to live on the space station and respond in the moment. If at two o'clock in the morning, while you're sleeping, the alarms go off and you have to wake up and respond. So we have that regular maintenance, just like we did in the, in, in the, in the strike fighter community of, you know, you got your instrument SIM and your NATOP SIM uh, and you have your random bolt face exams. We have that same stuff. Every job has admin and logistics that you have to embrace yep. in order to do the stuff that you really want to do. So you do what you have to do so you can do what you want to do. And we have plenty of that while we're on the space station too. And you know what else? My wife and I have been talking a lot about this lately. I still, I'm still a dad. I'm still yeah. a husband. I still have a family here that I, I, I want to be there and help make decisions and be a dad, but it's going to be a lot tougher uh, when I'm in orbit. And so I, I'm, I'm still going to try as hard as I can to be connected to them. And, uh, you know, this is our first time going through this, so we don't know exactly what that looks like. So we're all trying to be flexible, but, but that's important to us. And so trying to figure out, you know, how to keep them engaged and make sure that they're a part of my mission and also how to, for them to make sure that I'm still a part of our family uh, is a challenge. And we're just going to, you know, uh, do our best to make sure that we're, we're um, doing that for each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Victor, I know you have long days and we're grateful for the hour you've given us. 
Um, I want to leave us with, with one last question. I hope you'll, you'll indulge me in it. You know, you're, you're going to be the first African-American to live on the ISS, and the past couple of weeks have, have been tough for our country. You are a role model. You always have, and you'll continue to be a role model. How have you, how have you navigated the past couple of weeks, and how do you think about your role in the history of, of the space program, given what you're going to hopefully accomplish? Um, you know, you're, you're one of the first people to say that actually. And, uh, and that's intentional. So when I got assigned, I, I went to the NASA public affairs folks and I said, listen, I know how you feel about that. And I know you want to run with it because it sounds like a good, feel good people make it human story. Let's save it for when I get back. Hmm. I didn't show up here to be NASA's black astronaut, you know? Um, and I busted my butt just like everybody else, but I'm also a human being. I have four brown daughters. You know what I mean? I have a nephew that we're helping raise because my sister-in-law is a nurse in Houston. Um, and so I, I can't, I, I'm not disconnected from my community and from the things that are going on. So how have I handled this? I, you know, not well. I don't think there's a perfect way to, to, to navigate these things. I have this personal and professional tension that I just have to manage. Um, and I recognize that, you know, this job gives you a platform. But one of the reasons we have this platform is because we all respect it so much. And it can't be personal. It's clear. It's illegal for us to use it for personal gain. Mm-hmm. But even just pers- just getting too much into your personal opinion and your druthers is a gray area that I very much am not interested. I don't want to sully this amazing reputation. You know, when I show up in my blue flight suit and people care, it's not because of the name patch. It's the NASA patch. That legacy is important. And I just want to add to it. I don't want to take away from it. So I'm mindful of that all the time, but I am also still a human being. And I will say this, you know, if these things, that are that have happened lately have affected you in a different way than than when these same exact things happened before then i would say take this opportunity to learn uh you know i encourage folks if you are interested i've got a reading and watching list that i could share with all of you any of you that i think is worth some time if you have it if you like to read there's some amazing books that i think capture important points that are made by people much more eloquent than myself uh, and there's also research and data but there are also some great movies and songs. And one of the reasons I don't just recommend books to people is because when you hear, when you hear, um, for example, uh, Sam Cooke's A Change Gonna Come, uh, uh, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, you know, these songs remind us or maybe highlight to us if we didn't know that this isn't new. And so there's, there's a history to become familiar with before you cut in right now and think you're going to do something meaningful, understand some of the tale that comes with the now. And so uh, there's some things that we can all do to, to just understand the ground truth. Some things that, you know, there's a lot of debate, but there's a lot of things that are not debatable that we can just become informed about. And so I encourage that. I encourage folks to become informed. I try my hardest to become as informed as I can be so that I'm not just spouting opinion. Um, and then I write, uh, writing has been, I, I journal. I started journaling when I got assigned. Uh, it's been a long time since I kept one consistently. So I made a conscious effort to journal when I got assigned to this mission. And so my journal entries as of late have been about this quite a bit. And it's been actually really interesting because it's helped me just put some things down that, that have allowed me to set it down to literally set the thing down and walk away and go to work and focus and just be totally in the moment knowing, Hey, I've given that it's time. I gave that an hour today, this morning, and I'm going to leave it alone until I get back. Um, and, and I, you know, because of the position that I'm in potentially being close to launch, I'm, I'm just trying really hard to be focused. And, and, and when I have uh, extra bandwidth, it's all rolling back into my family. And I, and I still have daughters to raise. I mean, my oldest kid's going to start her senior year while I'm in space potentially. And so, wow. um, I'm trying to manage that, you know, and, and if my role in this from a professional standpoint can move the ball forward in terms of our country, our society, just respecting truth and inalienable rights, 
then that's awesome. If my presence can make people think about those in a different way or, or make them think about it, period. Another thing I encourage people to do is not, don't just go read a book about, you know, institutional racism or, or read the words of abolitionist Frederick Douglass. This is a great time. This is a great time to break out your constitution and read the words of the United States constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, things we all think we know. And, and if you go back and read it, uh, you know, I, like article one, section two, clause three, I, that's something I'll just never forget. Uh, but if you are, haven't read it in a while, this is a great time to read it. A lot of this debate comes back to that and to just be in touch with that ground truth. But if I can help to move the ball forward in that way, then, you know, I, uh, I'm grateful that, that, that I get to play a role in that. Um, and, and I think it's important for little kids. Like I got to see a shuttle launch on TV and thought, man, I'd love to drive that thing one day, not knowing what the heck I was talking about. And if there's a little kid out there that looks like me and because he looks like me, considers this or anything related to it or or just says i want to do something challenging he did something that before i saw him doing that i would have called that magic that's a movie but that guy's got kids he's talking about his kids right now that's a real person which means i can do it it became real for me and if i could do that for someone that's great that is more than i can ask i'm not going to change the conversation going on in this country I hopefully won't bring it down and maybe I can throw one, you know, pebble on the pile. But, but if I can make a kid look up and go, I can get up there. I can get up there. Your boy can be there in 30 years. Like really, that's how long I took me 37 years. to get here. That's how long. <laughs> yeah. it took. Um, and so if I can contribute in that way, man, we're all better for it. We're all better for it. You know, and I've got a lot more feelings I could tell you, but really that's yeah. not important. If we're just able to, to, to agree on the things that we can agree on, and then we can take one step forward. If a thousand of us take one step in the same direction, when you add up the area under the curve, we integrate that, that's a huge area. We've made a huge change, but it was one step for each of us. And so that's, I'm just trying to be a part of moving forward, even if it's baby steps. If enough of us take baby steps, we really moved something. And so I don't know how that's gonna look, man. That's what I'm journaling about right now is, what do I do with this time? What do I say when they want to interview me? You know, when black entertainment television calls me, I told my commander, I said, I hope you're comfortable talking to black entertainment television because <laughs> when they want to interview me to ask how I feel about this stuff, I think you and yeah. me are going to sit up there and talk about football. We yeah. both played college football. We both went to the military. He's from a farm town. I'm from the inner city. I think our friendship says more than I could ever say. And so, um, you know, I hope I do right make my mama proud and, and, and again, contribute to that NASA legacy and, and, and don't mess up. <laughs> and I think that we all win. So. Well, powerful words, Victor. And what a way to end uh, just a fantastic conversation. I think a lot of folks would love to, to, sh- to, to hear the, the words and the songs and the, and the videos and the books you could share. I'm happy to distribute to this group. Um, so we'll follow up afterwards. But God bless you and your family. Thank you for all the sacrifices you've made in the military. You will make with our for our country. And uh, thank you for your time. I know I know it's a, a precious commodity. And I'm very grateful that you spent it with us tonight. Thank you so hey, much. It was great to do this. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great seeing all the faces. And I'm glad there was a kid online as well. That <laughs> makes me feel great. Uh, Micah, it's great seeing you, brother. Um, best of luck to you and your families, both of you, all of you. God bless you. God bless us all. God bless us all. And um, I am, uh, I'm having a ball. My sacrifice has been small compared to my family. So, you know, I'm grateful for them willing to go through this adventure with me. So thanks for the time and. Fantastic. All right. I'll send you that list. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great night. Thanks y'all. Cheers. All right. Take care.